48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. The second person prosecuted under the national security law, Tony Chung, is denied bail after making his first court appearance. A construction worker is given a 40-month prison sentence for throwing a petrol bomb at a police station. And there's a warning that a planned new police hotline for people to give tip-offs about suspected national security violations would rip society apart. The former leader of the disbanded pro-independence group Student Localism has been denied bail after being charged with offences including secession. Francis Sitt has more. 19-year-old Tony Chong is the second person charged under the SAR's national security law. West Kowloon Court heard that he was accused of organising, planning, committing or participating in acts with a few to commit secession between July the 1st, the date the new law took effect, and Tuesday when he was arrested. The two other charges are under older laws. He's accused of conspiring to publish sedition materials and face two money laundering charges. No plea was taken and the chief magistrate Victor So adjourned the case to January the 7th. He ordered that Chong be kept in custody in the meantime. Under Article 42 of the new law, a magistrate should only grant bail if they are satisfied a defendant will not continue to commit acts endangering national security. Two other former members of student localism were arrested on Tuesday but were later released on bail. The group announced it was seizing operations in Hong Kong just before the new law took effect. A U.S. State Department spokesman said Washington condemned the arrest of three young activists, including Mr. Chong, under the national security law. The spokesman said the new law was being used to stifle dissent. He said the U.S. deplored the use of law enforcement for political purposes. A 21-year-old construction worker has been sentenced to three years and four months in prison for throwing a petrol bomb at a police station last year. The case also involves one of the 12 young Hong Kongers detained in Sanjun. Francis Sitakem. The district court heard that along with other people, construction worker Lam Siu Hong threw a patrol bomb at a side door of Mong Kok Police Station on October the 14th last year, at the height of the anti-government protest. He was arrested by officers as he ran away. Lam pleaded guilty to attempted arson with intent. In mitigation, his lawyer told the court that his client was poorly educated and had a low level of intelligence. Lam's action was not related to politics, the lawyer said. But District Judge Anthony Kwok said even if Lam isn't as smart as other people, this would not affect his ability to tell right from wrong. The judge noted that the throwing of the petrol bomb did not result in any damage, injuries or a fire, but said he needed to pass a deterrent sentence because targeting the police in such a way was a very serious crime. An arrest warrant had been issued for the second defendant in the case, who along with 11 other Hong Kongers was picked up by the Guangdong Coast in August during an apparent bid to flee the SAR for Taiwan by speedboat. The 12 face charges relating to illegally entering mainland waters. Sources have told RTHK that police have yet to decide when to launch a planned hotline for the public to report suspected national security law violations. Wendy Wong reports. Sources say the tip-off line will allow people to give information to the police's national security unit and will be similar to another hotline set up last year for people to report suspected illegal protest-related activities. It's understood people can give such information confidentially without identifying themselves. Informants can send videos, photos and other information through the WeChat and Line apps. But WhatsApp, one of Hong Kong's most popular messaging apps, might not be used after the force's last attempt to utilize it to gather information resulted in their accounts being suspended. 
Democratic Party lawmaker James Toe says the new hotline will undermine trust in Hong Kong society. He also thinks it's unnecessary. The National Security Office of the Police has already very extensive power, and their power has been tremendously increased under the new law. And so they don't need so-called the hotline. When you balance against the effect of the hotline, will disintegrate the society, will seriously undermine the trust between families, uh, students and, and teachers, and uh, be, uh, among a small group of friends. And I think uh, it uh, will be a disastrous ending. You're listening to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. Communist Party leaders have pledged to focus on higher quality economic growth for the next five years as they wrapped up a four-day plenary session on China's development goals. The party expects China's GDP to exceed 100 trillion yuan this year, but this would mean the nation would narrowly miss its previous goal of doubling GDP in the decade to 2020. Maggie Ho reports. A communique issued after the fifth meeting of the party's central committee says China will aim to achieve sustained and healthy economic development in the next five years to 2025, with a focus on higher quality growth. But according to the Xinhua News Agency, it has yet to set a concrete growth target for this period. Little was revealed about President Xi Jinping's dual circulation model of development, which aimed to combine a boost in domestic demand with support from external resources. The communique also said technological self-sufficiency is another goal and the nation aims to achieve major breakthroughs in key technologies by 2035. On security matters, the communique says China's defense capabilities would be beefed up in line with the economy and China would strengthen national security capacities and maintain strategic composure in the face of newly emerged challenges and conflicts internationally. It also said China would deepen reforms in all aspects as it speeds up green and low-carbon development, but there were few details given. The communique also reiterated that reunification with Taiwan would be achieved by force if necessary, and that the party will work to maintain the long-term prosperity and stability of Hong Kong and Macau. The final blueprint will be approved and published when the National People's Congress meets in its annual session next year. China analyst Professor Willie Lam from the Chinese University says it's quite unusual that the communique doesn't set out a concrete target for economic growth. And he says Beijing's focus on boosting domestic demand could have far-reaching consequences. The Chinese have embarked on a very ambitious plan to push the domestic economy uh, in terms of capital construction, uh, infrastructure projects and so forth. With enough investment, uh, it's possible they would reach the uh, 100 trillion yuan target this year, even though the debt level might rise uh, commensurately. And also the emphasis on the so-called domestic circulation, that means uh, mainly relying on the domestic market for consumption and uh, innovation, might mean that the country might be stepping back on its uh, open-door policy. The American Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has continued to denounce China during his tour of Asia, using a speech in Indonesia to label Beijing the gravest threat to religious freedom worldwide. Addressing an influential Islamic organization in Jakarta, Mr Pompeo criticized China's treatment of the Muslim Uyghur minority, who've been incarcerated in vast numbers. He praised Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim-majority nation, for its religious tolerance. 
France has raised its terrorism alert to the highest level after a man killed three people in a church in the southern city of Nice. The BBC's Hugh Schofield reports. At nine o'clock this morning at the Basilica of Notre Dame de l'Assomption in central Nice, a man entered the building wielding a knife. A church warden and a woman worshipper were killed inside the church. She had deep cuts to the neck. Another woman ran to a nearby cafe but died there of her wounds. Police were at the scene within minutes and shot and wounded the man. He repeatedly shouted Allahu Akbar as he was being treated. There's been a wave of threats against France from Islamist groups in the Middle East. Following President Macron's assertion at the memorial to the murdered history teacher Samuel Paty that France stood by the right to publish cartoons of Mohammed. Taiwan has marked 200 days without a locally transmitted case of the coronavirus. The island of 24 million people holds one of the world's best records on the disease. The BBC's Will Leonardo reports. In stark contrast to new lockdowns being brought in Europe and record case numbers in the United States, Taiwan has managed to, in effect, eliminate the virus. The densely populated island has avoided a second wave altogether. Only seven people have died with coronavirus, while infections have stopped at 550. The Taiwanese government has been credited with acting decisively to enforce quarantines, close borders early and trace the contacts of those infected. Analysts say recent experience of the SARS epidemic led to thorough preparations for a new virus outbreak. The number of people in India who've been infected with coronavirus has now exceeded 8 million. It's the highest figure for any country apart from the United States, which has recorded nearly 9 million cases. But the death rate is lower. The BBC's Yogita Lemaye is in Mumbai. The number of new COVID-19 deaths and cases that we're seeing each day has reduced drastically from what it was a month ago. Many doctors and epidemiologists say the country might have passed its peak. But they also warn that with the onset of winter in northern India and the increase in pollution levels, there is a risk of another surge. In fact, some parts of the country, including the national capital Delhi, are already seeing a sharp spike in daily cases. Locally, the Centre for Health Protection reported three new cases of COVID-19 today, including the first locally contracted infection in four days. Violet Wong has more. The lone local case is a 50-year-old woman who lives in Tokwa Wan. She has been linked to an earlier patient. The other two people infected were two women who recently flew in from Germany and the United States. The SAR has now gone four days without any COVID-19 case with an unknown source. With the coronavirus situation easing, the Jockey Club has announced that it will begin opening 19 off-course betting branches on race days starting on Sunday. Punters won't be allowed to watch the races at the branches, although they will provide audio commentary. The Jockey Club also said it will hold Marxist lottery draws twice a week instead of once from November the 10th. Labour Secretary Lo Chi Kuang had previously expressed concern that a loss of lottery revenue would harm charities funded by the club. Travellers from Hong Kong heading to Singapore under a planned travel bubble arrangement will need to download a contact tracing app that's widely used in the city-state in order to visit most places there. Rachel Lim from the Singapore Tourism Board says the check-in system, Safe Entry, is aimed at reducing the manual effort needed to log the entry and exit of visitors to various places like museums and malls. She said Singapore is ready to welcome visitors as its coronavirus situation there is stabilising. With good COVID infection control, good healthcare capacity, good healthcare resource, proactive testing and also very competent 
contact tracing, we have brought the situation, the COVID infection, steadily down to single digit in the past month or so. And as of today, um, there's zero community, case, uh, community cases as well. And in the past 14 days, it has been a low single digit as well. The Ombudsman, Winnie Chu, says poorly performing cleaning companies are still being awarded government contracts due to inadequate monitoring mechanisms. Her office found more than 1,100 cases last year in which the Food and Environmental Hygiene Department reduced payments to street cleaning contractors because they didn't do the job well enough. But she said the deterrent was inadequate, as the total penalty amounted to just a tenth of one percent of the total. Ms Chu said being given poor marks for performance did not stop companies from winning new contracts. Six out of the 14 uh, winning bidders score only zero points in the past performance, uh, which is something of uh, a great deal of concern to us as to how FHD differentiates the good and the bad performance of contractors and award uh, the tendering contracts accordingly. Meanwhile, Ms Chu says children could be at risk because of long delays to repairs at playgrounds on public housing estates. Her office's investigation found that some repairs had not been completed after more than six months. Ms Chu says sometimes the delay is because the government doesn't own a site outright and must consult residents or the link REIT, which runs commercial facilities at public estates. On other occasions, officials took no action, despite delays by contractors. In one case, the ombudsman said a contractor took three months to complete a one-month job. The Institute of Human Resource Management says Hong Kong's workers can expect a modest pay rise next year, if they get one at all. Less than 30% of the 90 companies it spoke to had firm plans to increase salaries by an average of 1.7%. 8% of companies had already decided to freeze pay, while the majority have not yet made a decision. The Institute's Vice President, Lawrence Hung, says uncertainty over the coronavirus is forcing employers to be more prudent. If they pay according to the performance, according to the company's performance, individual performance, I would say they will have a fair way to reward uh, those employees. But of course, they will also make reference to the Hong Kong economies. A reminder of our top stories tonight. The second person prosecuted under the national security law, Tony Chung, is denied bail after making his first court appearance. A construction worker is given a 40-month prison sentence for throwing a petrol bomb at a police station. And there's a warning that a planned new police hotline for people to give tip-offs about suspected national security violations would rip society apart. The news for RTHK. RTHK. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. Democratic Party legislator James Toe says a hotline police are planning to set up to let people provide tip-offs over suspected national security law violations will tear Hong Kong apart. Sources have told RTHK the force is yet to decide when to launch the hotline, while earlier reports said it could come as soon as next month. Mr Toe told Anna-Marie Evans this hotline isn't necessary. Well, I think uh, it will have have a serious blow uh, to the uh, freedom of Hong Kong. Uh, Why I say that? Because uh, it will um, undermine the trust uh, between people. And um, it will, uh, well, unlike other crime, uh, like uh, a, a drug crime or uh, robbery, okay, you, if you want to uh, 
put forward information to the police, uh, at least uh, it will be very substantial uh, in, in substance. But uh, for uh, national security law, I think it's a, it's a matter of uh, uh, relating to a, um, a political opinion. And I would uh, emphasize that uh, much report will related to the report on individuals' uh, political opinion. And um, uh, it will um, uh, make Hong Kong uh, not a city of freedom. What about police powers? Well, you know, uh, the police power already have uh, extensive power um, increased under the national security law. So if a, a, a person who, let's say, will wish to advocate uh, independence of Hong Kong, uh, um, suppose I put in a statement in, in the Internet, well, uh, the police has already a very extensive uh, um, resources uh, on uh, to uh, monitor the, the internet for such kind of activity. So once you press a button, uh, well, the, the, the police will, will know it. But for this hotline, say, if you just uh, share your opinion honestly and genuinely with, uh, say, a group of a uh, small group of friends, uh, just uh, chatting in the dinner, uh, well, about how the future of Hong Kong should go, uh, or whether you seriously criticize the, um, the, the, the uh, national leaders in, in Beijing, well, others may report to this uh, uh, hotline, and it may be a, a mere report of political opinion, and you will be put on the spotlight, and you may be uh, uh, civilians and uh, intercepted, you're uh, being intercepted uh, of your phone, and it will destroy freedom and destroy trust and disintegrate the society. Now, you know, you've been talking about uh, police powers, but, you know, do you think that there are certain times where people could be committing secession and, and uh, people need to know about it? Well, as I said, uh, the National Security um, um, uh, Office of the police has already very extensive power, uh, and their power has been tremendously increased under the new law. And so they don't need so-called the hotline uh, when you balance against the uh, effect of the hotline will disintegrate the society, will seriously undermine the trust between families, uh, uh, students and, and teachers, and uh, be, uh, among a small group of friends. And I think uh, it uh, will be a disastrous uh, 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 ending. The Institute of Human Resource Management says most companies have yet to decide whether to offer pay rises to staff next year because of the negative economic impact caused by the coronavirus crisis. But for the minority of firms that are planning on giving pay rises, staff will likely get a modest 1.7% increase, according to the group's latest survey. This follows an average pay rise of 1.4% this year, the lowest in a decade. The Institute's Vice President, Lawrence Hung, spoke to RTHK's Joanne Wong. This is a remarkable, you know, decline from last year, 3.6%. I think uh, we all understand because of the COVID-19, uh, in terms of the scale and magnitudes that impact on the Hong Kong economy or, you know, the economies uh, worldwide is very different from that of the, you know, like a pandemic like SARS in uh, day back to year 2003. So uh, I'm not surprised that this year people are more reserved in giving salary adjustment.
now and also when we do the survey the survey period is actually you know from January to September and from our participants company most of them uh, the salary adjustment and bonus is actually you know like pay in the um, month of uh, from January to April the 1.4 percent um, for this year was a lot better actually compared to what your historic figure showed from back in SARS back then it showed that there was a slight pay cut of um, 0.2%. But then you're also expecting things to get worse. And you even predicted that the unemployment situation could be worse than SARS. Can you explain further this analysis? When we look back to the year 2003, the SARS period, I think SARS only impacted on, you know, like 30 countries. Whereas the COVID-19, you know, the implication or the impact is more worldwide. Uh, and also, you know, in terms of the experience to handle pandemic or crisis, I think Hong Kong organizations, uh, they already have a better experience in managing this kind of pandemic crisis. Uh, and in terms of the deployment of the technology is quite different. Even, you know, the client mix or the trade mix is quite different from that of the SARS. So this is why I say we can't compare with the SARS. Uh, and then if I look at the figures right now, I think 1.4 is uh, kind of like not bad, despite this, you know, at the lowest increment uh, for the past 10 years. This year, only around 30% of uh, the companies you surveyed told you that they plan on giving a pay rise. How does that compare with previous surveys? I think last year, if I remember correctly, is like 40% of the company uh, is unable to decide what kind of the size of the bonus or the percentages of increment will be given. This year, we recorded almost like 63% is undecisive. So I would say in terms of the uh, approach, it's the same. They're all very cautious. They're very prudent. What about the likelihood of pay cuts? Different companies, they try different kind of approach and method to manage their human capital or the cost. Um, but, you know, like from uh, most of our uh, insight from different HR practitioners, they will tend to, you know, like they use different kind of the approach to manage the cost rather than, you know, the pay cuts because it definitely you damage, you know, the relationship. And also, you know, like it doesn't help on the team, doesn't help on the overall, you know, like, like the company image as well as the morale. The head of the United Nations team monitoring militant activity has told the BBC that al-Qaeda remains heavily embedded within the Taliban in Afghanistan. That's despite the Taliban signing an agreement with American officials earlier this year promising to prevent al-Qaeda from using the country to plot international attacks. In exchange, the US committed to withdraw all troops by next year. Underlining the continuing relationship, this weekend, Afghan forces announced that they had killed a senior Egyptian al-Qaeda member in a Taliban-controlled district. The BBC's Secunda Kamani has this report from Kabul. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. After 9-11... America's mission at the start of the war in Afghanistan was clear. Take out al-Qaeda and the Taliban who had harbored them. The insurgency that followed has claimed tens of thousands of Afghan lives. 
and the loss of hundreds of American and British troops. We're taking our soldiers, we're bringing them back home. We're not law enforcement, we're bringing them back home. Nearly two decades on, the United States and President Trump in particular are desperate to find a way out of the conflict that has cost billions of dollars. Earlier this year, American officials signed an agreement with the Taliban, committing to bring home American troops by next summer if the Taliban ensure groups like Al-Qaeda don't use Afghanistan as a base to plot international attacks. Al-Qaeda still aspires to pose a threat internationally. But in an exclusive interview, the head of the United Nations team monitoring ISIL, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, Edmund Fitton Brown, has told the BBC Al-Qaeda remain resilient, dangerous and close to the Taliban. The Taliban were talking regularly and at a high level with Al-Qaeda and reassuring them that they would honour their historic ties. And since that agreement was signed then in February, have you seen any change? Not substantively. Al-Qaeda are heavily embedded with the Taliban and they do a good deal of military action and training action with the Taliban and that has not changed. Al-Qaeda's strength certainly has been diminished over the years, but its global leader and a number of other senior figures are still believed to be here in Afghanistan, sheltered and protected by the Taliban. The US might be preparing to withdraw its forces, but its mission to completely eradicate its bitter enemy Al-Qaeda is not yet over. The web of militants in Afghanistan is complex. The Islamic State group is now also here on the ground, killing more than 20 students outside a tuition centre this weekend. But the Taliban see IS as rivals who they're happy to fight against. Al-Qaeda, by contrast, have been comrades in arms. Rehmetullah Andar used to be a Taliban commander. Now he's the spokesman for the government's National Security Council. The worse the situation gets, the more chance all terrorist groups, not just Al-Qaeda, will have to become bigger and stronger. The Americans might think that the agreement they have signed with the Taliban will sort everything out, but time will prove that's not the case. Maybe they have been given some assurances, but no one has seen any evidence yet of the Taliban separating from Al-Qaeda. What happens to Al-Qaeda could determine what happens to the Afghan peace process. At the moment, it's not going to plan. Despite the start of negotiations between the Taliban and Afghan officials, fighting has intensified, the worst of it in Helmand province. Thousands of families are in temporary shelters after fleeing their homes. Many fear the country could be headed for even worse chaos. This woman's husband and two sons were killed in an airstrike targeting Taliban fighters in their neighborhood. I wanted to bury them, she says tearfully, but there was nothing left. The Taliban insist they won't allow any group to plot international attacks on the country. American officials say they're monitoring the relationship with Al-Qaeda and that their withdrawal is conditions-based. There is a desperate desire to end the suffering of this war. But will its legacy be a safer Afghanistan and a safer world? 
In the 1980s and 90s, Whitney Houston was one of the biggest stars in the world, and the deceased singer's popularity continues to live on. She's just become the first black artist to get a third Diamond album. The BBC's Charlotte Gallagher has more. Play a Whitney Houston song at any party and you're pretty much guaranteed that people will start humming along and dancing. In her 30-year career, Houston recorded some of the most recognisable songs in musical history. She won multiple Emmys, Grammys and Billboard Music Awards before her death in 2012. And now she's made history, becoming the first black artist to get a third Diamond album after her 1987 record Whitney sold more than 10 million copies. Her debut album and the soundtrack to her film The Bodyguard had already reached that milestone. The announcement comes just days before Whitney Houston is inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, along with others like Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails and the notorious B.I.G. So who else has had more than three Diamond albums? Led Zeppelin have five. The Beatles have six. But the artist with the most Diamond albums might surprise you, unless you're a country fan, as the US singer Garth Brooks holds the record with nine of them. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. For proper tree care, precautionary measures must be taken. Private property owners and property management companies should hire qualified arborists to carry out risk assessment on trees on their property. Mitigation measures recommended by arborists for problematic trees should be taken promptly to ensure public safety. Trees need your love and care. To learn more about proper tree care, check out the Handbook on Tree Management launched by the Development Bureau or visit www.greening.gov.hk. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to to remember that's the theme of this show from now until until 1am
here we have the all-time favorite, The Green Leaves of Summer, played by Johnny Pearson and his orchestra. Let's welcome there. Jim. Blue bird. 